0: Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here at Colorado Springs. And I am so excited that you are tuning in. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, in fact, and we're covering verses 7 to 15. Ideally, last week I was just giving you bullet points about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ as we examine all of the text, the 18 prophetic books in the Bible it's easy to put our emphasis on the book of Revelation and certainly can use that as a guide through end-time prophecy. But we have to take all 18 books into consideration because then we get the broader understanding, a much much more detailed picture of what is forthcoming as we prepare for this. Because we all have, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ— You need to know the details because we have to be in preparation right now as we're in a sanctification process, getting us ready for our assignments during that thousand-year reign. He calls us a royal priesthood for a reason, because we have job duties. We have an assignment to do during the thousand-year reign as Jesus Christ reigns over all of the earth. We covered many of the bullet points that we see highlighted throughout the many books of prophecy. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. In fact, we spent a great deal of time covering some of the prophecies of Ezekiel because Ezekiel has so much to share on this. And of course, Zechariah, specifically even Zechariah chapter 14. So we look to all of these to give us a better understanding, especially since... Some 70% of the book of Revelation is drawn from the other prophetic books of the Old Testament. So, it's good to understand these things as we look for the forthcoming reign of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week and the week before, I'll just highlight it again. Uh, Christ reminds us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows and then he tells us in Matthew 25:13 watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming but we must be in a posture of readiness. Now, as I gave you a number of bullet points last week about the millennial reign, some of you may be listening right now and going, "Ah, I missed last week's show. I want to hear that. Well, go to calvaryfountain.com and you can listen to last week's program. Again, our Saturday program is a roundtable format in which we talk about some of the issues going on around uh, not only our city, uh, around the state of Colorado, around the nation, and even around the world. And uh, so that's an entirely new program on Saturdays, but on Sunday's, we're sticking to the expository teaching of the Word of God, and as a, a Calvary Chapel Church, Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, uh, we are going through the Bible verse by verse. In fact, uh, right now, if you were to come visit us at, on services at 10 a.m. on Sunday, uh, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes right now, but here we are on this program, we are talking about the book of Revelation. And so let's just jump into this a little bit about uh, Jesus Christ's reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, some have asked me, where is Jesus during all of this time? Well, we covered that last week, that he is reigning over all of the earth from Jerusalem, King David, actually has the assignment of reigning over the city of Jerusalem while Jesus Christ is reigning from uh, Jerusalem over all of the earth. And Zechariah 14 even tells us that we come to worship him there from all around the world. We come and worship him even during the Feast of Tabernacles. So a uh, powerful though, picture there. And, and uh, you know, here, let's just look at this of what worship looks like there in Jerusalem during this time. At the first temple, for example, there is the Ark of the Covenant that occupied the Holy Of holies, and here at this third temple. Now, this is the true commissioned third temple. This is not the abomination of desolation that was spoken of in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, or Matthew 24, 15. That that structure is often considered the third temple, but it is not. It's referred to in scripture as like the temple of God or the abomination of desolation. It's a structure that exists very temporarily, and it seems to be part of this broken treaty of the Antichrist with the nation of Israel, and and it's desecrated immediately thereafter, perhaps right after they've finished construction after those first three and a half years of that seven-year period of time of the end of days before the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so here we have the true third commissioned temple, and the Holy of Holies will be the place of the throne room of Jesus Christ. Now, Ezekiel 40 to 44 actually gives us a detailed blueprint of this magnificent structure. If you are interested, you can contact us at calvaryfountain.com, and we have a video that will show you the exact specs. We have a 3D model like a tour going into this 3D replica of what the Bible gives us detail by detail of this enormous structure. It will consume some 562,500 square feet and a a rough footprint, if you will, of 56 square miles for the Holy District alone with all the priests that serve Jesus Christ from this area. So the cubits-to-feet ratio is a difficult one to fully understand, but most suspect that the measurement in that conversion is roughly 21 inches per cubit since Ezekiel uses the term royal cubit. And so for those of you, again, who really want to see this, take that 3D virtual tour. Uh, You can go to calvaryfountain.com, contact us there, we'll make sure you have that link. Now, we'll see him face to face. That's the key here. As you recall, on the Day of Atonement was the only time that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies area, but here we will actually see and worship Jesus Christ, his face being shown to all of us according to Zechariah chapter 14, and that we're told that we go there to Jerusalem annually to worship him, that's an awesome thing just to even consider. And now let's just read here, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. This is what we read. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, "...to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." Now, so at the end of this millennial period, this 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, and again, we talked in great detail about that last week, all the bullet points throughout the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation of what occurs during that time. But at the end, it seems incredibly uh, saddening. I mean, how do you describe the numbers of people as the sands of the sea that are now being destroyed by the wrath of God because they turn On Jesus Christ. You see, God releases Satan from this abyss after a thousand years in verse 7 here. And then he goes out with his final agenda to lead yet another revolt against God. He's able to gather the nations from all around the world. And this is the the size of this army. It's hard to explain when you think about all the babies that will be born over the thousand-year period of time that people are living far longer, and the population during this millennial reign grows to be enormous. And we talked about that all last week, about the river that flows from the temple of Jesus Christ down to the Dead Sea, out to the Mediterranean, trees that line it, fresh water and fish that now repopulate the Dead Sea. It's a beautiful demonstration of of, of something new coming with the reign of Jesus Christ. These people who have worshipped him to his face now partaken of his economic system, his agricultural system, the health and beauty that is all around them, and just like a third of the angels of heaven that turn their back on God, they will have seen him in his glory and reject him. That's how this ends of this thousand-year reign. That seems heartbreaking, but of course that's not the end. Uh, And I'll get to that point here because uh, as we get over the next couple weeks here, we'll talk about that, of what the new heaven's, and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem that's coming. So even though it looks like here the enemy has brought yet another revolt to break the heart of God, the story's not done. It actually gets even better. And wait till we talk about the new Jerusalem. You will be overwhelmed by what I have to share with you about the magnitude and the awesomeness of this new Jerusalem. So the phrase here, Gog and Magog, used in verse 8, th- this refers to the world rulers and the nations in rebellion against God. This draws again from Ezekiel 38 to 39, where the people will come from all around the world and rebel against Christ. So we read that in Ezekiel 38 3 to 6. At his return, at the Battle of Armageddon, that's when that occurred the first time this will happen again. So this looks like a repeat of history. However, there isn't much of a war here. Uh, God sends down fire, consumes them, end of story. We're not picking up swords and going to war. God takes care of this, and it's very unfortunate, not needed, but this is the rebellious hearts, the hardened hearts of man, even to reject God to his face. Now, uh, these names then stand symbolically, this Gog and Magog, for rebellious, warlike people and for the nations that are in rebellion against God and His people, according to Psalm chapter 2, who will be crushed. And this battle ends being the shortest war in human history because the Lord God incinerates all of the armies as none of us are called to arms in this battle. We, we don't even ride with the Lord on white horses like we did in the Battle of Armageddon. There's simply no threat to the reign of Christ here. God sends down fire from heaven, devours them, no bodies, no remains end of story again it's a sad harsh reality that these lives end in defiance to god uh, these people will be have been led and taught about god and and go up to worship jesus and they turn in revolt to him almost like the tower of babel all over again this hardening of hearts uh, to the authority of god And uh, I think our hearts will be broken to see them act like that. Those of us who are faithful to Jesus Christ will have been leading these people in worship of Jesus Christ. And to watch them turn on him like that in a Judas-like fashion and deny the Lord Jesus, that will break our hearts as well. And we're told that the second death has no power over those of us who are reigning with Jesus Christ. So this devouring by the wrath of God through fire does not affect those who have been the faithful servants of Jesus Christ. I.e., You and I, as we are faithfully serving the Lord in this lifetime, the second death has no power. So we're assured salvation in Jesus Christ Those of us who truly have repented of our sin and confessed the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's important to understand because you go to Matthew chapter 7, and there are those who look like they're Christians, certainly say they're Christians, but there's no repentance in their heart. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's the key here is, is a confession of faith, a confession of repentance that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they will see the Lord in all his glory and still reject him. That's the heart of Judas here, that they may be remorseful, but not repentant just like the Pharaoh was. He was remorseful that these things had occurred, but six times he would not repent, and we see that here in the book of Revelation as well, that the hardening of the hearts of people six times, they will not repent, just as Pharaoh would not repent nor the people of Egypt. Now, why does God do this? Why does he release Satan from the abyss? Why, why even go through this process? There's no explicit answer that's given Other than the speculation that I have shared a little bit about this, that there may be three reasons as to why God does this. Number one, to demonstrate the wickedness of Satan, to demonstrate the depravity of humanity, according to Jeremiah 17, 9, and to demonstrate the final justice of Almighty God. Now think about this. Even after being bound for a thousand years, Satan still comes out fighting and deceiving. He does not come out with a posture of repentance before God. He doesn't come out saying, I am sorry, my Lord, and I repent before you. No, he comes out wanting to lead a rebellion against God immediately. So with one last strength that he has, he leads this revolt against the Lord. So clearly Satan deserves it, and the justice of God demands it, according to verse 10. But humanity is every bit as rebellious and wicked. We blame the devil for everything, don't we? but but these folks these people during the millennial reign will not be able to blame the devil because they have been sinning even during the time of the millennial reign. It says that they will still sin. They need leaders and they need judges over them and high priests and so forth in bringing them to worship Jesus Christ. It even says that there'll be some who won't go worship him and they'll be rejected the blessings of Christ. Even during his thousand-year reign, they will still refuse to go worship him. This is the, the hardened hearts. Of people. So they can't blame the devil for these particular decisions. There's going to be a perfect government, perfect health, perfect climate, even perfection, if you will, where there, we see animal life engaging with humanity in a, a perfect demonstration of like what we saw at the Garden of Eden, or read about it certainly at the Garden of Eden, uh, where, where, where children will even be able to reach into the cobra's nest and not be bitten. Uh, this is the kind of perfect system they will be around and still. Reject Jesus Christ. So a perfect environment will not keep man from sinning because a perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. A perfect heart, of environment doesn't solve humanity's problems. Only personal trust in the person and work of Christ Jesus will change a person's heart. So you don't have to go to the millennial, millennial reign of, the, of of Jesus Christ to find this out. This is a human trait of our stubborn ways that we know right now and we try to make excuses for. But the better life becomes for some people, the better the possibility that they will conclude that they don't need God. Often prosperity can even lead people away even more so than hardship. Even when the church was going through great uh, persecution, that seemed to be when the church would thrive the most as opposed to under its prosperity. So it seems like the better things get for us, the less we worship God, right? And then that seems to be even the case here, unfortunately. And one of the pa- purposes, I believe, of this particular passage of releasing the enemy to, to justify the necessity of eternal punishment here, because this proves that even the equivalent of 14 lifetimes, based on the current life expectancy of around, say, 70 years, and then we divided that into 1,000 years, it's not enough to overturn man's allegiance to Satan. And why do I say allegiance? Because Christ said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, that if we are not with him, then we are against him. And therefore, the eternal lake of fire is a punishment that is justified. Now, listen, if we look at God's heart here, before we discuss the great white throne of judgment, let me once again reiterate the the, the heart of God of whom we serve, because we often just think of God as so, this, this wrath-filled God. That is not true. God's will is that no one should perish. How do we know that? Because he tells us that. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. He desires all men to be saved. He hasn't appointed some to wrath and and some to life. Some would just be born to destruction. That's not his heart. He desires all men to be saved. Now, he already knew the decisions people would make before they even left the womb. And we know that even from Esau and Jacob. And we know that God has appointed even every day of their lives before that they ever were breathed their first. I mean, that's the awesomeness of our God, because Isaiah 46.10 tells us that he saw the end from the beginning. He also tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some consider or count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. We go to John chapter 6, verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In Ezekiel 18, 20-23, we read these powerful words, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? And then we read in verse 11a of chapter 33 of Ezekiel, he says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? That's the heart of our God in this. How easy it is to lose sight of that, to hear his heart in the midst of wrath that comes upon these nations. And we just see or feel like he's a God of wrath when actually he's a God of great love. He defines love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he defines love. The agape love is the standard of love across the globe. Man cannot do that kind of love even without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit To love like that. That's how awesome his love is. And God wants all men to repent and live forever with him. Jonathan Kahn said these words, "'God's will is that no one should perish. Judgment isn't his desire, but his necessity.'" The good must bring evil to an end or else it would cease to be good. And yet his mercy is still greater than his judgment. His heart always wills for redemption and therein lies the hope. Now we struggle with the severity and the eternality, if you will, of the lake of fire that it's an eternal lake of fire because most people don't understand how a loving God can condemn an ignorant person who lived in a village in the jungles without God, without the Bible, or an understanding of God, I should say, and, and then are tossed into eternal punishment because of ignorance, as we may think, and, and therefore we struggle with the concept of hell and began to begin to doubt its very existence. So before we can even read about the great white throne of judgment, let me examine with you God's redemptive plan that applies to all mankind. Now, we are called to be witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Matthew 28, 19 to 20, chosen before the foundations of the world, according to Revelation 17, 8, verse B, or 8B, the the subpart of uh, verse 8, and that we're told to stand in the gap before God in Ezekiel twenty two thirty, as watchmen on the wall, according to Ezekiel thirty three one to ten, and we are held accountable by Him to declare His truth, the only truth, by the number one, blood of the Lamb, and by the word of our testimony, and the fact that we are willing to lay down our lives in service to Him. How do we know that? Revelation chapter twelve verse eleven. But if we fail to reach a single soul. We can be assured that God will not allow anyone to go to the lake of fire without having been exposed to the opportunity to the way of salvation according to Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 and John 5:24 to 30. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're told that God knows all those who belong to him, and we know that he knew them before he made time. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read those powerful words that he foreknew. In Jeremiah 1 5, he says, Before I formed you, I knew you. In Revelation 17 8, he says that we are chosen before the foundations of the world. And Isaiah 46 10 tells us that he saw the end from the beginning. And there are a number of scriptures that refer to believers in Christ being chosen Uh, more than a dozen. I've got them here, I can send them to you. But we choose God. Which we talk about more in a moment, but ultimately, God chose us first because He already knew the spirit even before the womb, according to John six sixty five, John fifteen sixteen, and Jeremiah one five, even Psalm one thirty nine sixteen. So God knows the hearts of men. A number of scriptures: Psalm fifty one, Hosea six, Isaiah one. Jesus Christ will not lose a single soul that belongs to Him. You have to. Hold firm to that. It's not like Jesus Christ at the end of days is going to be going, Oh, I forgot about Billy. I forgot about Samantha. I was so close to getting them and I let them slip through my grip. He knows every single person that will ever know him. If the spirit is there, if the hardness of hearts is not there, if that spirit of Judas is not there, he knows them. And John six thirty nine tells us, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. This confidence that God will not let a single soul that would or could love him fall into eternal damnation because they didn't hear or receive the truth that can unfortunately lead to complacency in believers as we abdicate evangelism to others rather than being obedient in service to him. This That's our issue. If we're not being obedient to go to all the nations of the earth, if we're not doing what God told us to do, to be watchmen on the wall, to be obedient, to go to every person as we are, are messengers of truth, that's between us and God. God is working on us for our obedience or lack thereof. But it doesn't thwart the will of God. He is not going to lose anyone that would have possibly belong to him. He is firm in that. This is where we cannot lose our fervor, however, to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he's going to hold us accountable for that in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, and Romans 10, 14 to 16. Now I would encourage you to read in full context Ezekiel chapter 33. It's a powerful one to understand the heart of God as it relates to judgment especially to the world before Christ came as the mediator of the new covenant. So before Christ's atonement for our sins, all men were held accountable to God by their faith in God, which was revealed through their works in accordance to the law. As we go to Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians 4, even Hebrews 7 to 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. So in in fact, we we still have to hold the reality here that the, the, the law still defines sin, According to First Timothy chapter One, First John three, and Romans seven, so their faith demonstrated through their works, was credited to them as righteousness, according to Romans chapter four and Hebrews eleven. However, after Christ's death, our works and good deeds became a byproduct of atonement. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit's working through us that yields an eternal harvest. What does that mean? Does that mean that the people of the earth who lived for almost 4,000 years before Christ died and resurrected must stand alone on their merits of their works to inherit some kind of this eternal salvation rather than on Christ Jesus? I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans chapter three for the answer to that, because apart from faith in Christ Jesus, there is no salvation, and no flesh will be justified in God's sight. no one can stand before God and receive eternal life on their own merits. We are told in john fourteen six I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me we're told in John 3:35 to 36 that the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand and he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe in the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him, So Christ didn't just die for those who served God faithfully for the past 2,000 years, but for those who served him faithfully throughout all of time. Their works were credited to them as righteousness, according to Romans 4, but it was the blood of Christ that secured their eternal Inheritance, And you go to Galatians chapter 3 for more detail on that, including Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we'll just cover all of Hebrews chapter 9. Yeah, you'll be safe there for the full context. Uh, now, men of all generations can receive eternal life through salvation in Jesus Christ because he atoned for those who were faithful and obedient to God prior to Christ's death and resurrection. And we read in Romans chapter 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, but this means that no one will be able to stand by before the Lord on their merits alone. You can't be good enough to inherit eternal life. That means man must hear the truth and make a decision according to Romans chapter 10. So those who died before Christ, even though they had faithful service and it was credited to them as righteousness, they will still need to confess their faith in Christ to enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we know that? Go back and read John chapter 5. He gives the answers to that in John chapter 5. So all heard the truth even before the flood, and God has always ensured that the truth has gone forth throughout all generations, and this includes the time before the flood even. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, prior to which God had sent Enoch even to warn the nations, according to Jude 14 so i'm out of time i I, i've got to end it right there there's so much more we can cover on this we'll get more into this but i hope at least i've i've just got you excited to study this for yourself i've given you a lot of homework Go back and read those when you get a chance. If you missed them again, especially, just cover John chapter 5, especially. And you'll, you'll hear about how God has a plan for this, of those who have died even, that they still must confess, that they must still stand and, and give a voice unto God. And it's it's amazing. Go back, read John chapter 5. I know you'll be encouraged by that. Go back and re-listen to this broadcast when you get a chance at calvaryfountain.com. Be encouraged. Share the truth. Get others excited about this truth, this hope that is in you. Learn more about our ministry at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you.